Hello, I'm Elder Greg Newman, and I want to welcome you to New Hope Fellowship Online. I want to thank you for tuning into this message. I hope and pray that it helps you grow in your relationship with Jesus and challenges you to study God's Word. If you'd like more information on who we are as a church, you are invited to nhfchurch.org. If you're interested in partnering with us financially to help us continue to share the gospel with those around us, visit nhfchurch.org and click on Give. Again, I'm thankful that you are here listening, and I hope you enjoy this message. Remember just thinking as I'm running, all right, hope the next song's good. And I had those one of those original iPods where you don't have the screen on them, but you push the button and you get to the next song and the next song. And I'm just wondering, will it continue in my good playlist running? And as I get to the end, it's the late September, almost early October, and I can't remember if it was into October, but it, I was hot. It was a hot Saturday morning, and I'm sweating, and I've run nine miles, and I get to the end, and my playlist has stopped. I've been recycling the songs, and I realize, what am I thinking? I've run nine miles. I'm a junior in college, and I've gone nine miles in one direction. That means I have to go nine miles back to campus. So whether I run it or whether I walk it, I'm going to have to go for nine miles. And as I'm getting it, as I'm thinking about this, I'm thinking, this was probably the stupidest idea I've ever had to do. You see, we started this thing in the junior year that two guys in our dorm wanted to run a marathon, thought it'd be a good idea. So the rest of us jumped in and said, we're going to help you, we're going to train with you, we're going to run with you. And so we've been running through the semester, building up our endurance and, and running and it becomes a mind game. And one of the Proverbs comes to mind as I'm in that nine-mile threshold of Proverbs 28.1 that says, the wicked run when no one is chasing them. There's no one chasing me. It's just me on a trail running with cows on the side and cornfields. And I'm thinking, what am I doing? And I make it back to my dorm. And I realize a few things as I was training is that I had some back pain that I started to develop. And you would think that running and cardio is good for you. It's supposed to be good. But I'd wake up in the middle of the night and as I was training and my lower back would just be killing. Why? And then I, as I talked to my friend, I realized I need new shoes. And I had the same shoes for over a year. So they really weren't worthwhile to be running long distance in. So I needed shoes. And as I would weight train and I'd still eat about as well as I do in college, which means I don't really eat very well at all. I eat a lot of fried food and everything else that's not good. You needed to work your core. And most of my back pain I found was my core was not strong enough to do the training. And as I'm running further and further, you actually have to have a strong core to hold your body and to keep it. And as you're running those distance, mile after mile, it becomes a head game. You start to think about your pace. You start to think about your breathing. And you hope you've got enough songs in your playlist or a podcast to keep up with the distance. Mine, again, as the unfortunate part was, is I don't know what song's coming next. And if you put it on random, it could be anything because those original iPods had no screen. So you didn't have Spotify. You couldn't have just picked. And so it would go. It becomes a mind game. In marathon training, you don't start with 18 miles on a Saturday. You start slow and steady. You start first off with pretty much one mile on a Monday, and midweek you run a little more miles. And then Saturday or is typically your long mile day. So you would run anywhere from 10, 15, 18. And the trick with marathon training, you never run the 26.2 miles until race day. That's when you run the full 26.2 miles. You build your endurance, you build your pace, you build your focus. 
up until race day. And the week before, you run very little miles so that you can put all of your energy into that moment. The other trick with running is if you run with your head down at your feet, you tend to either trip or lose sight or you lose your pace. The trick is to run with your eyes up and focused ahead of you and to keep that in your focus at the forefront, not here. Here you just grow weary and your legs get heavy and you question, what am I doing on a Saturday afternoon for two and a half hours, nine miles in the wrong direction to go two and a half hours back? It's a lot of time, a lot of effort, it's a lot of energy. And if you jump into Philippians, if you were there, Philippians 1.6 says, and I am sure of this, Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, wrote this letter to the Philippians. He says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Meaning that the moment you get saved, he's saying that God will see you through to completion. From saved into eternity, God will see the work through to completion. And then he jumps into chapter 2 of Philippians, and he says this in verse 12, Therefore, and if you always see therefore, it's why is the therefore there? It's because of what was written before. And if you were to see what was written in chapter 1, he says, Therefore, because of what I've communicated thus far, my beloved, referring to the church, to the saints, the brothers and sisters in Christ, he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. Paul's not there. He has planted this church. He has affirmed them. And he writes this letter to confirm, to encourage, and to build them up. And he says, now that I'm not there, all the more so, he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Meaning that as he writes this, you are not saved by works. God will see it through to completion. He saves you by his grace through your faith in Jesus but yet, from the start point to the end part, you're going to work out that salvation piece. Day by day, step by step, life by life, trial by trial, with fear and trembling, you go through this life. And he says he will bring it to completion because it is God who works in you through those moments to teach you and to grow you and to shape you into who he's calling you to be. Whatever that is, whether it's a stay-at-home parent, whether it's a blue-collar job, a white-collar job, a farmer, or whatever it is, he's calling you. He who started it will see it to completion. Our part is in the middle with fear and trembling to work out what does that look like day in and day out, which picks up and piggybacks into where we're at in Hebrews chapter 12. And it's entitled, this whole sermon is Growth Points, which aren't fun. Growth points, though, there's a specific point of growth points. It's my dad's verbiage that he would tell me, and I hated it as I learned what it meant. And as I served with him on staff, I didn't like it any better, and the staff didn't like it. Growth points by their description, by what you see, is it's a growth, and it's never really all that pleasant. It's usually something you're wrestling with or going through, and it's a growth point in your life to build you and to shape you. Whether it's in ministry, whether it's at home, whether it's in a relationship, you hit these growth points. And so the author of Hebrews, his whole point of writing this letter is to encourage the church, to remind them, one, of who they are, and to remind them thus far in Hebrews 1 through 11 that Jesus is greater than all of these things. And he finished chapter 11 with the whole concept of these men and women who by faith were great men and women of old, and yet they died without seeing the, some of the promises they were told to bring in fulfillment. 
And so in Hebrews 12, it says, therefore, again, what was said prior, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And so he says, his first point really here is don't lose heart. Again, when you're running, your eyes are focused ahead of you. You're looking ahead and keeping your eyes there, not down. He's saying, don't lose heart. Keep your eyes focused ahead. Since we've been surrounded by all of these witnesses that I've mentioned in chapter 11, great men and women of old, and some experience great victory, which is what's neat about chapter 11 is he speaks that in verse 34. They have quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, and put foreign armies to flight. He's saying these guys, these men and women, they received great power and great victory by human standards and worldly standards. They were just, wow, they had great faith. And if we had faith like them, we could conquer enemies. We could do things. But I like how it continues on with that. He said in verse 36, others suffered mocking, flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with a sword, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated. It goes to the other extreme as well, that we experience great victory in faith by worldly standards, and by other standards, they were absolute failures because they were beaten, they were stoned, and their faith caused this. And he goes, because we have these folks who both had great highs and great lows, but yet are our example and are watching us let us throw aside every weight and sin, which tells you those are two different things. Sin is what's, it's not good for us. Sin is, if you read, sin is just, again, it's an old archery term that if you were to hit the bullseye, great. Anything outside the bullseye was sin. Anything short of perfection. And sin will just lead you away from God. It's disobedience. And so weight are the things that are, could be good. These could be hobbies. These could be fun things. These could be things that we enjoy. And yet he's saying, let us throw aside those weights, those things that distract us, that pull us in a wrong direction that aren't bad inherently, but they're not the best. Louis Giglio would write that in order to have the best things, you have to say no to some good things, which means the best things in life, you have to say no to some things that you may want, that you may like. But for the best and for the end result, you're going to say no to some of those things to keep your eyes on eternity and on the prize. And the sin, to turn from sin, just means that it's, here's where sin's leading me, I'm gonna turn from it. So let us throw aside those weights, some of those good things, and let's run the race, which is just an analogy to your life, that you've been called by God to a certain life, whether that's stay-at-home, whether that's blue-collar, white-collar, farms, whatever it is, God has called you to a purpose And we can sometimes say, and we compare apples and oranges of this person or that person. And if I just had this, if I just had that, it's like, no, he's saying, run the race that you've been given, but let's run it with endurance. How do you get endurance? Well, it's like marathon training. You have to slow and steady, build your endurance, build your ability. Again, you don't start running 18 miles one day. You start off by running one mile on one day. And maybe that's for two weeks that you're at one mile on Monday and you're at one and a half miles on a Wednesday and you're at a three miles on Saturday and you don't run the whole three miles. You're running and then you get out of breath and you walk and you pick it up and you start to run some more and then you walk. And over a period of time, you start to complete it. And as you complete it, well, then you have to up the ante. You've hit the one mile. Well, now you need to be running consistently a three-mile Monday. And now you need to consistently be running a seven-mile Wednesday. And you grow to a 15, 
18, 20, 22 is the top miles on a Saturday. And then you're prepared because you've built up your endurance with your chest. You've been working on your core. You've supposedly been eating well. And maybe you're doing some other things to help get you ready to build that endurance. But you don't start one week running 26.2 miles. It takes about a six-month stretch if you're a brand new to running. And it's time. It's effort. It's discipline, which most of us don't like or don't want to or want to engage with. It's easy to get distracted at the same time with these good things, just like a marathon train. It's a mind game. It comes down to as you run those miles, it's in your head. What am I doing? Why am I doing this? I'm tired. I'm hungry. I got to run nine miles in the other direction. I've already been out here for two and a half hours. That means I'm at least two and a half hours back if I keep the pace I'm running. And I'm probably going to go a little slower on the way back because you're tired, you're exhausted. And he says here, therefore, since we have these people around us and when life presses in, let us throw off the weight and let's turn from the sin that so easily entangles our feet and our lives and let us run with endurance, keeping our eyes, looking to Jesus in verse two, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. For the joy he endured the cross, Jesus didn't look at the cross and say, this is gonna be awesome. He looked at the cross and said, what's beyond it? There's going to be a great multitude that are going to be saved because of my willingness to go there. He didn't think the turmoil that that was the issue. It was what's the end result of this? People get saved. People have a right relationship with me. People get restored because of his willingness to go and his willingness to die. He goes on in verse Verse three, in verse three, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten your exhortation addressed to you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. David Guzik writes in his book that shame is significant. Daniel 12, 2 says that shame will be an aspect of the terrors of hell. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Jesus bore this hellish shame to accomplish our redemption. When he says there in verse 2 and 3, looking to Jesus who despised the shame of the cross, and as it goes into this concept that we are his sons, that the shame piece in our society and culture weighs on us. Shame, guilt, past decisions, past mistakes. And we let it weigh us down and we tend to think God couldn't or why would he do things? And then he continues that, that Jesus bore this shameful accusation, blasphemy. He bore shameful mocking. He bore shameful beating. He was a shameful crown. He wore a shameful robe. He bore a shameful mocking, even when as he prayed on the cross, that he endured that, the shame and the guilt of the cross, the shame and the guilt of our sin and what that was, that this stumbling block is to many, that they will do just about anything for Jesus except endure shame and embarrassment, Spurgeon writes. Spurgeon spoke again. He said boldly to Christians who would not bear shame, come from the world for following Jesus, meaning that world shame comes from the world itself. He says in Spurgeon writes, yet you are a coward 
Yes, put it down in English. You are a coward. If anybody called you, so you would turn red in the face, and perhaps you were not a coward in reference to any other subject. What a shameful thing it is that while you were bold about everything else, you were cowardly about Jesus Christ, brave for the world and cowardly towards Christ. It's the shame and the guilt that when life presses in, where there's compromise made, where will I make that compromise? And you get into this, and he speaks to this point of, remember who you are. And he goes into this concept, and he goes further of God's discipline itself as we walk through life, keeping our eyes on him, that the discipline we go through, the hardships we face, are for our benefit. Don't lose heart. Keep your eyes on Jesus, the author, the perfecter of our faith. He endured the cross for the joy that was set before him and consider him. Keep your eyes on him and consider him who endured all of these things. So when we grow faint, when we grow weary, when you're struggling against sin, you haven't yet resisted to that full point. Christ died. Christ faced it. Yet in our Western culture, we're not punished for coming to church this morning. We're not in any way probably going to die or get hit, go, someone's going to come after us because we're here or for our faith. We do face maybe, what does this person think of me if I invite them to church? What would they think of me if I shared my faith? That's where our shame and guilt comes in. And his encouragement, the author of Hebrews is saying, even their church at this point, you haven't yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. Your faith hasn't cost you everything. Sure, it's cost you maybe a house, relationships. It hasn't cost you your life yet. And the world we live in, there is our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world who do face life or death situations for going to church. They do face life or death decisions for opening a Bible, for reading it. Yet you and I, and even the church and here that he's writing to at this point, hadn't faced that. They were under the emperor, what his name was Caliglia. And as he would end and as he would die, Nero comes to power. Nero burned half of Rome down. And then his burning of Rome down to build his own palace and his own view of Rome he ends up blaming the Christians as a scapegoat. And he burns hundreds of thousands of Christians on the road and he lights the roadways through their death. And he's saying here, you haven't yet resisted to that point, though it's probably coming. He probably knows and has heard. And yet we see from their own, the fact that Nero's persecution is so rampant that they stood firm. They were encouraged by this in some way. But God's discipline is for our benefit, as I mentioned. Let me give you some encouragement. It's kind of how he says, keep your eyes on here. The disciplines are for our benefit. Let me encourage you. Let me remind you, have you forgotten an exhortation that you're sons? When you know who you are, you know what to do. If you know who defines you and what you're about, then you know what to do and how to live. And he's saying, let me remind you that you're a son so don't regard lightly when you go through trials, when you are disciplined. And, and discipline itself, we tend to think it's something I did. It's because of my past. It's because I've done something. And the reality is that God's discipline is not about our past and it's not punitive. It's none of those things. But it is about training and it is about God's love for us. That as we go through things, it's not for him to stay and hit you with a stick because you've done something or because your past comes back to haunt you. Sure, there's choices we've made in our past. There's choices we've made that have ramifications for today, but that's not what God's discipline is about. That he lets you go through things. He lets you experience things, one, to train you and to do it out of love and for care. Proverbs 13, 4 speaks to this in the fact, it, it reads this way, 13, verse 24, whoever spares the rod hates his son 
but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Every child, every person is different. What you go through is for your benefit and for you to be taught and to learn and to grow you. What I'm going to go through might be slightly different because I'm different. I'm one of five kids, which means that the discipline for me was different than my siblings. So for instance, my brother is the one that you beat. You just needed to beat him. It's the only way he responded. You send him by himself and he'd love it. But you spank the child, you spank him, and he would be like, okay, I'm, I'm going to change. And he would. For me, it was much more, Nick, I'm disappointed in you. I can't. And that was enough to just turn me completely inside out and to change what I was doing. For my younger sister, it was send her to a room by herself. She hated that. That was the worst part because she wanted to be around people and loved people. It's like, no, I'll do anything. I'll be better. Like, no, you're going to spend five minutes. You're going to learn. My older sister, it was force her to be around the rest of us because she didn't like the rest of us. And you probably all have siblings like that as well. Each of us was different. And it wasn't a one-size-fits-all. So sure, yeah, as we started as young kids, one, two, three, and four, sure, it was a one-size as we were figuring out who we are. But as our character developed, as our personalities developed, my parents had to realize we're different. And what works for me doesn't work for my sister, and what works for my sister doesn't work for my brother. And realizing it's the same with God that he knows you inside and out. He wants you to be more like his son. Therefore, he is going to let things happen. And I've told this story before, but on my way to get baptized, I was six or seven years old, and I was driving in my dad's, I wasn't driving, I was a passenger in my dad's S10 pickup in 85, so no power steering. You roll down the windows, no power windows, no power locks, but it had what was back in the day, a cigarette lighter that you could push the button and it would pop out. Some of you have no idea what that is. So it's literally no bigger than my thumb or my finger. And it's this little this cylinder that would go into a socket. You push it, and it would heat up and have little metal coils wrapped in like a circle. And it would pop out and be bright red for you to light your cigarette and smoke. Well, my parents didn't smoke. My siblings never smoked. And so it's like what you had this thing that as a kid, you push the button, go in, and then it would pop out. Go in, pop out. So I would pop it in, pop it out, and I would take it out, and I would look at it. My dad said, don't touch it. It's hot. So, okay, and I put it back, and then I, we kept driving, and I'd push it in, and it'd pop out, I'd push it in, and pop out. I took it out, turned my corner. He looked at me, and I looked at him, and he didn't say anything. And I'd blow on it, and I'd stick it back, get it hot, pop it back out, and put a little stick in it. Look at him, he'd look at me, and I'd put it back, and then I'd pull it back out, and I'd blow on it, and I'd, he'd look at me, and I'd stick my finger on it once. Ow! And I dropped it on the floor. He goes, that hurt? I said, yes. I was going to do that again? No. All right. He told me once. He didn't tell me a second time. And that's sometimes with parents, right? You tell your kid, hey, don't do this. Why? Because it's going to hurt you. At a certain age, you have to let them make their choices. You can't drive them. You can't do everything for them. You can tell them and you can coach them. And then at some point, they're going to make a decision. And my dad let me make my decision at six years old to burn my finger. And I learned, you don't do that. Well, I had to feel a little pain. I had to get a little hurt. It wasn't going to harm me. If I was going to stick it on my tongue, he would have done something. If I was going to burn my sibling, I'm sure he would have hit my hand. But it was just me, and it was just my finger. And he let me taste a little bit of pain to realize that's not good. It's likewise with God himself. Don't regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. There's things you're going to experience in life that aren't going to harm you. They are going to hurt. They're growth points. They're designed to grow you. 
the same thing as you lift weights and you go to the gym. If you keep doing the same workout month after month, you will stop growing your muscles. You have to change it up because your body gets used to it and your muscles get acclimated to it. And you have to shake it up so you continue to grow. And likewise with God, that he lets you go through things so you can know his character. And as I have two young kids, a two-year-old and a four-year-old. And when you discipline them, what I love is after this one, they come back and run, I love you, I love you. And that's what you want. That's the same way with God is that he goes through things and it comes back as I don't like your choices, so I am going to discipline you, but I still love you, always. But this is harmful, this is detrimental, and because I love you, then I have to bring about discipline. And if God love, and if you have a relationship with him and you know him, God will let you make some decisions that will lead over here. And then at some point, if it's going to harm you, you better believe it's going to get your attention. One way, shape, or form, it's going to get a hold of you. It's going to bring you back. Did you learn it? If not, guess what? You get to repeat it again. And some of those lessons, some of those seasons that we go through in discipline aren't just simply two weeks or once I figured out, Nick, am I done? No. Sometimes these seasons of life, these moments can be months, can be years, can be 20 years. They can be for the rest of your life. And I don't know why that is. God does, and God doesn't waste it. He preps you. He disciplines it. It says in verse 7, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. You see, the point of it is to shape you and to mold you. And there are some heavy, heavy things that we've experienced. And God's for that, Nick? No, I wouldn't say that. We live in a world that's broken, and we have 8 billion people on this planet that are living right now. There's been a lot more that have died. Everyone has choices they make. And yet, what is love? Love is a choice. It is sometimes those butterflies and those emotions, but you don't always feel that every waking moment. Love is still a choice. And sometimes things you experience and have gone through aren't a result of anything you've done, anything you did. It was someone else's choice, and the ramifications, you just happen to get right in the brunt of it. Does God still use that? Yes. He uses that and he shapes us and he molds us. And some of us that we've been disciplined, we have a father figure who we haven't had the best father image. We haven't had the best relationship with our parents. And yet we know deep down in that there is something about a father that's good. What is that when we don't experience it? Guzik writes again, he follows up with this portion of scripture. He writes, a fundamental fact of the believer's relationship with God is that he or she is to his people a loving, good father, that God is a father to us. He goes further with it. Some have trouble receiving this because they never knew a loving or good human father in their own experience. Yet even these can still receive the love of God the Father. We all do not know by experience what a model father is, but we all know by intuition what a good father is. God is that perfect father, and he gives us that intuition. One feels cheated or disappointed by a bad father because they're intuitively compared them to our good father in heaven. 
And it's that concept that God deals with us as sons or daughters, that he cares about us. And so he's going to discipline us at times or sometimes our choices. And it's not so much, and here's the permission from your pastor, you're allowed to ask the why. Why am I going through this? Why is that allowed to happen? You're allowed to ask that. Ask it. Because God is our father, and just like a father, he can handle it. Just like my two-year-old will ask, why? Why? And it's like, I've answered you a million times. It's the same thing, and we think we're then annoying to God when we've experienced that. It's like, no, actually, you're not. You can go to God, and he wants you to go to him, and you're allowed to ask the why, but it's not always about the why. It's what. What is he teaching me? What has he revealed to about himself through this situation, whatever that is, a health diagnosis, a job change, loss of a house, loss of someone near and dear of a loved one, change, whatever that change is. It's not so much the why, but the what. And he says in verse 11, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. It's that whole concept that a great dad will always build but never break a child. A great dad will always build, but never break. Never beat you down to the point that you can't stand up. Never break you to the point of just you're incapable. No, he builds, he equips, he empowers, he strengthens. He shows up in those moments that you can never imagine if you just open and keep your eyes, not down here and woe is me. That's why we corporately gather because sometimes the narrative in our own heads is wrong. And when we get around our brothers and sisters, we're reminded of that truth, that he is with us, that he'll never leave us nor forsake us, that I'm not the only one going through this. That shame and guilt concept as well comes into play when we walk through life and we go through hardship, that we think we're the only ones and we tend to stuff it and we don't want to talk, but bring it out. Talk about it. Because you'd be surprised at how many others have either walked through it, have been through it, or who are in the process of it just like you. They might be earlier or further along. But we tend to stuff it because the shame and the guilt, and it says, no, it doesn't seem pleasant. It never is. But it's the later, it's the end result. You run 26.2 miles a marathon, which I didn't run the marathon. Again, we were training two other guys in our dorm room. It wasn't me that ran it. So I still have to run one at some point hopefully before I'm 50. But it, beside the point, you don't start off, it's a six-month process of training. And we did a lighter train. Now, you can go more aggressive with it. Depends on your schedule. Depends on season of life. But it's a process to get you from point A to point B. And what does God say in Philippians 1.6? That he who started a good work in you will see it to completion. It doesn't leave you hanging. Our role then is in the here and the now to walk through it, to not ask so much the why, ask it, but look at what is he teaching me? It's that end result. That Philippians 4.13, we know, and many, some of us have it memorized, 4.13 just speaks to the whole concept that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And yet if you would read the two verses prior, verses 11 and 12, it would say that I've learned to be content in all things. That it's not so much I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, it's the context of I've learned to be content in all things, whether I have a lot, whether I have a little, lot, this, it's through Christ who strengthens me. And that content piece, I've learned to be content, you could change it with the word cope. I've learned to cope in all things. I've learned to bend but not break in all things. Through who? Christ. By keeping my eyes focused on him and not myself and not straight down, but on him 
that I don't break. I bend, but I don't break. That I grow through the hardships and times because God's discipline should produce something within us. And it should produce holiness and peace. In verse 12, it says, Therefore, since we know we are God's sons, since we know we're to keep our eyes focused on him, because we know that we're going to be disciplined because we're his sons and he wants to grow us up and empower and equip us, therefore lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for holiness without it in which no one will see the Lord. And it's this whole point that it should produce within us peace and holiness. What is peace? Peace doesn't mean everything's hunky-dory. You're discontent. You're okay with it not being maybe okay. That's called living with attention. Just bring it out. I'm not okay. Life at this point, maybe right now, just a good four-letter word sucks. Sometimes that is life. It doesn't get easier. It doesn't get better. It sometimes is in that moment. But it's this peace that in Philippians, again, it speaks to this when you read through it. Don't worry about anything, but in everything, make your request known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and mind. When you read that, it doesn't solve your problem. It doesn't solve the season. It doesn't magically make everything better. It says that when you're worried, when you're anxious about anything and everything, bring it to God with thanksgiving, with joy, with for the joy set before him, Jesus enjoyed the cross, not for the cross' sake, not for the pain and suffering, for the end result, for what it would result in, that through this, many would become known Christ. And it's likewise for you and I that when we walk through that, we are garnered, garnered peace. That if you bring everything before the Lord, God doesn't promise to solve, he promises to give you peace, contentment, a recognition to bring out loud that this is what I'm facing, this is what I'm going through, and it's not pleasant, it's not fun. And I'm not okay with it, but I'm at ease with it. I can cope with it. I can be at peace. And God has given you a brain for wisdom and discernment to know then how to navigate through that event, those relationships, whatever it may be. And this Christmas, for you and I, maybe it's for us to then move towards that peace. Holiness and peace. Romans 12, which is one of my favorite chapters in Scripture, speaks to that concept. That if you're to live at peace, so far as it depends upon you, you're to live at peace with everyone. Meaning, so far as your choices, your reactions, you, you're to try to be a peacemaker. You're to be forgiveness. You're to do this. Doesn't mean they will. And he says, for us here, therefore, lift up your drooping hands, make straight paths, strive for peace with everyone, and for holiness, which no one will see the Lord without it. This Christmas, maybe we just spend a little more time to pause and reflect, to think about the hope that we have to be able to keep our eyes on Jesus because he was born at just the right time and at just the right moment for you and for I to know him. That he came, that he died, and he resurrected to give us hope and so in the busyness and the hustle and the bustle of all the things going on from tonight into tomorrow, just take a moment to reflect and think about, we sing about peace that he brings and we need a savior. The peace that he brings is because of his death. And he wasn't born in luxury and he wasn't born in a great house. And he wasn't born in even a blue collar. He was born in the lowest of low which tells you something about him, that he comes to those who are humble in heart, those that recognize their need for a savior, 
That's who he comes to. That's who he gives his peace to. That's who realizes, I need a savior. And so maybe together and maybe this year, in these next couple of days, you reflect on the peace that he brings and the cost that it took. And how do you move towards holiness and peace? Well, maybe this Christmas season as well, you need to start the peace process with someone. You maybe need to start that forgiveness peace with someone. You maybe need to say, I'm sorry to someone. Or maybe you need to start saying, let's get better at this holiness. These good things that are in my life that are distracting me from my walk with Christ and raising my family in a way that's God-honoring people that find kingdom advancing. Maybe I need to push those on hold and lean into where God has me. Where are you at, you hope? And this afternoon, if you come back, we're going to look at that moment in time where Jesus came. What did that look like from that humble beginnings? We've heard the story over and over probably. It'll be a little different tonight. So let's look at those details a little bit deeper, a little bit more closely to realize the humanness of Christ, but also the humbleness of how he came and why you and I have peace and why Mary, his mom, as she sat there at his birth and the shepherds come in, just sat and pondered on these things. Let's pray. Lord God, we are grateful in your name to be gathered here, to know Jesus that you were with us at all times, that you never leave us nor forsake us. And as we gather in this Christmas season, may you give us boldness to share the hope that we have to the family and friends who gather around in our home or if we gather in other people's homes. May we just, the way we speak, may the way we talk, may our our attitude and our countenance display the hope that we have in you. And for those of us, Jesus, who are in cloud nine, who are going through great stretches of good, and we're like, I haven't really been in a hard point. Lord, let us rejoice at that. And let us be able to encourage them, those who are in hardships. For those of us, Lord, who are walking through some hardships at the moment, may we keep our eyes focused on you to know it's not about the here and the now, it's eternity. And the ramifications are for those to come with us into eternity. So this season, may we pause and take the time to pause, to reflect, to enjoy. May we have courage to share our hope. For those of us, Jesus, who don't know you yet, may we have the willingness to open and humble our hearts and our minds to you. That just as Paul says in Romans, would we confess with our mouths that you are Lord, believe in our hearts that you were raised, Jesus, from the dead. And may you who start a good work in us, may we believe it and trust and know you will bring it to completion. Would you give us the endurance and the courage to live each day by faith. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.